On the show today, Dr. Katie Novak, here to talk about Universal Design for Learning, a framework to improve and optimize teaching and learning for all people based on scientific insights into how humans learn. When Dr. Katie Novak was a student early in life, she did what was required by her teachers, handing in work on time and following rules and expectations set by the school. But she never genuinely developed a deep love of learning. She didn't feel that she really had what it took to be a great student. But all that changed when a teacher that she had truly believed in her capabilities and pushed Katie to be moved into advanced classes in high school. This genuinely changed the trajectory of Katie's life and she learned to believe in herself and she began to develop the habits and skills needed to thrive academically. This led Katie on a path that would have her eventually become a teacher herself, wanting to reach all of her students and help them to find success in their own unique ways. After years in the classroom, Katie would journey into educational leadership and ultimately become the assistant superintendent of schools in Massachusetts. She would go on to earn a doctorate in curriculum and teaching and publish eight books. She now designs and presents workshops both nationally and internationally focusing on the implementation of inclusive practices, universal design for learning, multi-tiered systems of support, and universally designed leadership. In today's episode, you will hear Katie talk about what universal design for learning is and how it can be implemented successfully in schools. She shares many examples of what UDL looks like and what educational leaders need to think about when considering this framework and how it might be embedded within their schools in authentic ways. Regardless of your position in education, I really do hope you find some valuable takeaways from this discussion with Katie. Let's jump into the conversation with Katie talking about who she is and the work she does in education. So uh, I'm Katie Novak. I am a a lifetime educator. I started off teaching high school English. I transitioned to middle school English. And I was in the classroom full-time for 13 years before I transitioned to administration. I've done a lot of reading coordination at the district level. I did Title I. I was ELL director, all kind of simultaneously. But for the previous six years, I was an assistant superintendent of schools in a regional school district outside of Boston in Massachusetts in the United States. And it's so funny when I think about the timing because I originally did a three-year contract as an assistant superintendent. And at the end of that three-year contract, I was like, oh, goodness, I'm doing a lot of consulting. It's really difficult to balance this. I'm only able to consult during my vacation. So I think this is probably going to be it for me at the end of this three years. And it turned out that I was able to renegotiate a contract as a 0.8. So instead of working all 261 days, I worked 210 days and I did that for three years. And, you know, it was just even having those 50 days a year, it just wasn't quite enough. And so I resigned 
the last week of February last year, you know, just like, I love this district. I'm not going to ask for another contract to go find someone who can be a little bit more invested here. And like within a week, everything shut down. And so like, it was almost as if I saw it coming because things just became so incredibly different. And so everyone's like, oh, did you leave because of the, you know, the pandemic? And I said, no, it wasn't even on my radar. And then suddenly everything came together. So um, since July 1, I've been focusing on consulting and I do a lot of work with districts internationally, focusing really on how we can design more inclusive learning opportunities. So how do we design a classroom that works well and gives many different students equal opportunities to learn using the materials and the methods that they really need? And so it's a lot about embracing variability. It's a lot about really embracing flexibility. And I support schools and districts and, you know, state departments of education all over the world in trying to move towards more inclusive and equitable systems. Okay, great. That gives us a nice little insight into where you're at right now and, and the work that you do. And let's jump to early days in your life because I to set the frame for my discussions, regardless of who I have on the podcast, I have Olympians on, I have professional athletes, authors. And what I like to do is take a little bit of a dive into um, early years just to better understand um, and give more context to um, the person that I have on the show and, and the strengths that they've developed over the years. But when you think of yourself early days, you know, what were you like uh, as a learner and what were your interests? And I guess what really inspired you to go on the path towards education? So, you know, I was, so both my parents are teachers. And so, you know, what I think was an incredible, incredible privilege is I, you know, I grew up, I am a, a white middle-class woman. Um, I grew up with, you know, two parents who were educators. And so everything that I was taught in my home really aligned with the values of a school district, which I know is a privilege that's not afforded to many learners. But in that, you know, I was basically raised as a part of the system. I had, you know, parents who were both in the system. And so for me, school always made sense. I did not struggle in any way, but I also did not put forth any more effort than I needed to. So I was like a classic, like C's get degrees type of gal. Whereas, you know, I, I in no way struggled, but you know, a, a very solid B or C student. And no one ever really expected me to do more than that. Um, I was very compliant. I was, I never, you know, got a detention in my life. I never got in trouble. I would do exactly what people asked me to do and nothing more. And, you know, I would always get on my report card, like pleasure to have in class. And, you know, that was it is I kind of got away with just being kind of well-rounded and friendly and, and compliant, but I never, ever thought that I was smart. You know, I would never have used that word to characterize myself because I just kind of did okay. And I think one of the most impactful things that ever happened in my life, you know, is my parents always had two rules. They said, you know, be nice and work hard. And, you know, I never really thought about what working hard meant. I did athletically. Um, you know, I was a great, great athlete and a very mediocre student. Mm. But again, I think that in so many ways, the system does um, allow for compliance. So it's like, you know, 
I wasn't missing work. You know, I wasn't handing in work late. It was just like, I just wanted to get through it. So my senior year, I was not in a single honors class, not in a single advanced class. I literally got waitlisted from a state college. So, you know, it's kind of interesting going back because I've, I've stuck with education I have a doctorate in education. And it was like, I didn't even get into the university of New Hampshire on my first try because the grades were that mediocre. And so, um, I was in a class with this woman named Paula Krauss, who I keep in touch with to this day. And I had her for junior year for like a drama class. And when I got into her senior class, she's like, what are you doing in here? what are you talking about? What am I doing in here? And she's like, Oh no, this is not happening. So anyway, she goes behind my back in the most beautiful way and calls my parents. And is like, Katie needs to be in honors classes. And, um, she pulled me aside and she said, you're going to go into honors classes. I'm like, what are you, are you out of your mind? Like, do you know who you're talking? I'm not an honors student. And, you know, again, my standardized testing scores were nothing impressive. Like there is I was just beautifully average if there ever is a thing. So she's like, no, like you're wasting it. I remember she said that to me. You're wasting it. I said, I'm wasting what? And she's like, oh, you're not pulling that on me. You are capable of doing work at very high levels. I will not allow you to be apathetic about it. And your parents already approved the schedule change. So like tomorrow you're going into this honors class and the expectations are very different. And so like, I'm willing to have lunch with you as, as long as it takes, but I'll help you transition. I'm like, I need to have lunch with my friends, but I I probably hung out with her a little bit. So this really goes on to completely change the trajectory of my life because I was like shocked being in a class with quote unquote, those kids who I just thought always were just so much smarter than I was. And it, it, you know, it, I was, I was fine. And, and like something lit a, a fire under me where I was like, wait a second, I can do this work if I put in more effort. And so uh, I, I did get into college. I went to college, but um, I graduated with highest honors in three and a half years. I graduated early. I went on to get a master's degree. You know, I went on to not tolerate apathy in any of my classrooms. So I was always driven to how I could be a Mrs. Krause for any student who I had an opportunity to connect with. And so, you know, years go by at this point, you know, I I had written UDL now it had sold very, very well. It's on its second edition and the publisher's like, who are you going to um, acknowledge? I'm like, Mrs. Krauss, you know, it's been 20 years. I have, I've not been in touch with this woman in 20 years. She absolutely changed my life. So I just wrote about how no one ever thought that I could do more than what I was doing until you. So I track her down on Facebook and I'm like, can I bring you out to dinner? So I go meet her with this book. Like you made such an impact on my life. And she's like, for what? (laughs) I'm like, Mrs. Krause, you changed my whole entire life. And she's like, but what, what specifically did I do? And I'm like, do you remember when I was in your senior class? And she says to me, oh my gosh, of course I remember. You wrote this really amazing college essay about sailing. Like, and I, I mean, what teacher remembers the thing you wrote 20 years ago? And I'm like, yes. And then you put me in an honors class. And she was like, what? (laughs) I said, you put me in an honors class. And my sister is there. I swear this is what happened. She said, oh, honey, I did that with everyone. And I was like, what? (laughs) And she said, no, I was very, very against leveling. And I really thought everyone should have access to advanced coursework. And so it was like over time, I would just invite students to, to show like all students can be successful here. 
And I was like, what? And she's like, I, I, I mean, yes, I saw something in you, but I saw something in everyone. And, you know, I knew that your parents would be on board and I knew that, you know, you'd be able to do it. And it was like, for me, that was like, so like, is my whole life potentially an exercise in the Pygmalion effect? Someone thought I could. And so I did. Um, And so, you know, for me, again, I was, I was the student who was never going to do anything more. You could never call me engaged. And for, you know, for now, when I think about universal design, it's not only about ensuring that kids who are marginalized and minoritized have access to education. That's a huge part of the work, but also that we cannot create systems of which people are passive observers of their own education. Yeah. What a great story. And and that I was going to ask you, if the school you went to implemented UDL way back then, what would they have done to make you like, not, not like school more, but to find your passion and drive to be a better learner? So I guess this would go into what UDL is a bit, but just talk about what that would have looked like for you at your school let's say when you were in grade five and six or something like that, what would it have looked like and describe the conditions that would have been created for you to love learning and want to become a deep learner? I think it always came down to, I had absolute pockets of this, you know, and it was just never really consistent, but there are certain assignments that I remember, you know, if I could go back and look at all of my, you know, 12 years of school there's only a handful of assignments I remember, but every assignment that I remember now aligns to what we're talking about with deeper learning and project-based learning and universal design. And, you know, I think that again, there were moments where I like really woke up and were really invested in things. Um, I love working with other people. I'm incredibly extroverted. So anytime I had opportunities to work with someone else, I was much more invested in that. Um, I love, love, love writing, but I like writing the things that I want to write. <laughs> like I don't want to just answer other people's questions all the time. So I remember there was this one assignment where the teacher said, so like, I need all of you to understand. It must've been like the characteristics or the, you know, the breakdown of blood. What is blood made of? And he had all of these facts and he's like, you have to, to make essentially the best, most memorable presentation of some kind. So your classmates will never forget these facts. So it could be like this really amazing drawing. It could be like a children's book. It could be whatever. So my dad had a video camera. And so me and my friends made the most ridiculous music video of all time of like us on our pool deck in bathing suits, like rapping. And the rap was called what is blood. And I remember still, I mean, this is, we're going way back in the archives here, but it was like, what is blood? Is it red or blue? And it was all about like how oxygen, you know, will change the, and, and we spent hours, like writing it down, trying to find the right words that rhyme, rehearsing it. Like I was locked in. I don't remember a single other thing about that class. Not one. Like I can't even pinpoint the teacher's name, but like, oh, I know about blood. And so I was, you know, just thinking back to, and again, for some learners, that would be torture. Right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very extroverted. I like the collaboration. So what I loved about it is that we were given the choice. We were given a very firm goal. 
We were given very clear grading criteria. This is what I'm looking for. But then it was like, you get to decide how you're going to do this. And all of the things that had just been a part of like the kind of the machine of teaching that I just went through the motions, I get to break out of that. And so like for me, that was such an amazing, amazing opportunity. I also in geometry once... I do remember this teacher, we were talking about different measurements and she allowed us to jigsaw. So different groups had different kind of sections and we were doing like uh, the conversion of like, you know, liquid volume. Mm -hmm. And so again, I, I was very proud that my dad had a video camera. We did like a, like a bartending skit like not alcohol bartending skit but like hey we're making this like punch and like it says i need two cups oh wait but my measuring cup doesn't have cups how do you know how to convert that and again we just thought it was like the funniest thing ever so that's two that's two high school assignments out of the probably thousands and thousands of assignments and you know i think that there's such an opportunity to not only make school accessible and engaging but memorable and meaningful Mm -hmm. and authentic. So I think that if people gave me more options and choices to learn about things in ways that I wanted to learn, um, to work with people, if I was comfortable doing that, um, to share what I learned in ways that were creative. Now I know that there are standards that require writing and that's, I understand that, but like, can I choose what I'm going to write about? Yeah. Um, can I choose the the format of of which it is in? You know, does it have to be, if we're writing a narrative, why can't it be a narrative poem? Why can't it be a screenplay? Why can't it be a stage play? You can still determine if I'm able to write a narrative. And we just, I just didn't get that flexibility very often. I hear embedded within everything you're saying is self-determination theory. You know, mm-hmm. so the, the idea of intrinsic motivation and what truly intrinsically motivates people And Dr. Richard Ryan came on my podcast uh, a few months ago to kind of talk about self-determination theory and, and the three fundamental needs to um, intrinsically motivate people to do whatever task they need to get done or that they want to do. So the idea is autonomy, first of all, is a fundamental human need. Uh, Relatedness, which is the relationships that we experience strong relationships and competence, meaning that you want to feel that you can get the job done, whatever that job is. So you just described that, that there was autonomy there for you to take action on and express yourself. And um, I read a little bit from, from your work and this idea of multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation and multiple means of action and expression. That's exactly what you just described. And, and that is exactly what is rooted in self-determination theory. Um, so the science of motivation. So autonomy is a huge thing, but also the relationships that are, that are built within the class to help all learners thrive. So take us more into UDL now and maybe the tiers so people can understand. But just take us through uh, UDL and what it means. And, and then I have a, a question to follow up. Sure. So when we think about UDL... I I always find myself talking in threes. So there's really like three core truths that UDL is built upon. And then there's three UDL principles to make sure that we're actually like aligning our practice to what we know about learning. So when you're talking about universal design, you're really saying, how do we design one thing 
with enough flexibility that it works for many people. There's so many examples of this in our world. So for example, if you were to go to like a tea shop or a coffee shop, you know, it's, you walk into one store, you're all in the same place, but you do get to choose your flavor and hot or iced and to go, or, you know, for like the actual ceramic mug to hold in your hands. And there's a lot of flexibility and autonomy for deciding how are you going to meet the goal of having like a delicious drink at this like tea or coffee shop. And so that's really about universal design is how do we create a classroom that has a lot of different opportunities for all learners. So the three things that are the most important in that scenario are this number one, this concept of variability Mm -hmm. and variability is essentially that all of us have a really unique mix of strengths and limitations, but they change based on context. So education likes to label people like you're a hot coffee person and I'm an iced coffee person and that's what we get forever. And it's like, but depending on the temperature outside or the time of day, I might choose differently. And so variability is not only that like you and I are different from each other, but like I am different depending on the day. And so labels are not valuable for deciding what anybody needs for learning. So that's the concept of variability. So we know that variability exists. It's the most widely replicated finding in educational research is that people are just different. Um, The next is this concept of firm goals, because even though we're all different, we should be brought together by like a shared outcome or a shared experience. So what brings us all into a tea or a coffee shop is that we all want a delicious drink. Um, In a classroom, we need to make sure that all students can write an argument or that all students understand how animals adapt to their environment or, you know, how world wars uh, begin, right? And so we have like a very clear goal, but what we want to say is there's actually numerous ways that you could learn this, lots of different materials that you could learn it from. And there's also a lot of ways that you could show that you've met the goal. It doesn't have to be one size fits all. And so if the so first Katie, can is, I can I just interrupt you there just because please. I have a question about that that I want to dig more deeply into. So again, going back to self-determination theory, Richard Ryan, uh, Dr. Richard Ryan really emphasized that autonomy is not a free-for-all, that there are yep. constraints in place. So what you're describing with the goals is that there are constraints. There has to be constraints. It's not a free-for-all, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then multiple means of uh, engaging the student and providing them with autonomy to show their learning in a variety of ways. Now, my question is, what about environmental design of the class? Co-constructing that environmental design. So if my learning preference is to lay on the floor in the corner in a quiet area to do my work, is that also part of it? Is it the design of the environment as well as the task? I mean, it's it's really, it's looking at all barriers. Yeah. So environmental barriers, social emotional barriers, linguistic barriers, you know, it's essentially once you articulate that firm goal, you know, the question is what would prevent someone from meeting this goal? So I'm going to go back to this you know, if we served everybody tea with milk in it, we know that some people are lactose intolerant. Mm -hmm. So like adding milk to everyone's tea, it could be potentially a barrier. That should be a choice. Um, You know, we also know that some students have, you know, some learning and attention issues. And we can predict that asking a student to stay with their body quiet could actually prevent learning. It's a barrier to learning. And so it's not so much a choice for the sake of choice is, is the choice going to 
eliminate a barrier? You know, can we be flexible enough and allow for that? And so, you know, what I always say to learners is like, really think about what you need to learn. And some students might need to say like, I, I can't do it here. Mrs. Novak, I just have to, like, I just need more space. Oh, okay. If that's what you need, that's fine. <laughs> right? Certainly. And that's, so that's a big, big part of that because we know variability when I work with adults and I'm talking about environmental design, um, what I often do in the chat or in a jam board, or, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it is to say, like, imagine that you have this amazing opportunity to publish in this really, really high profile education journal, but you need to get 750 words of original content done in the next two hours. What does your environment look like? Like when you really need to work. And then I have like all these considerations, like, are you on the couch are you on a chair? Do you have coffee and water? Are you quiet? Are you in front of people? And for me, based on my own bias, the answer is so obviously hard chair, desk, silent room, no distractions. And it blows my mind to see very, very successful adults being like TV on in the background. I'm like, what? Like when you have to perform a task and it's just that we don't often consider perspectives that are different from our own, you know, as, as uh, that Ted talk says, there's a danger of a single story because like for me to churn work out, I need a locked door, maybe a water, no sound, you know, and that needs to be it. But there are so many people who need different environments to be successful. Mm. Um, You know, some people love going to a coffee shop for the ambient noise and the music in the background. Some people love having TV or music on. Some people need to write it down first by hand. You know, I go straight to typing, don't interrupt me. And I always find that really fascinating. And so I say, okay, as adults, we recognize this. Why wouldn't we offer that same, the same option for students? And sometimes I feel like there's an overcorrection. So flexible seating, has come on the radar as being a great option. But I've seen classrooms that got rid of all traditional seats. And I'm like, if given the option to to work, do not put me on a bouncy ball. That's a terrible idea. I won't get anything done, right? And so like, I think that the UDL lives in the or. It's not like, okay, so now everyone's gonna be on a bouncy chair. So now everyone's gonna work on the floor. You know, so now we're all gonna do a podcast instead of a multiple choice test. It's like, no, we've we're not just changing one one size fits all for another one size fits all. We're actually thinking about what flexibility and and variety is gonna be necessary so all people can get their work done in a really meaningful way. Um is student need- is student voice a part of that though in the co-constructing oh, of what they need. Yeah. So mm-hmm. talk talk about that idea of involving students because teachers really feel, you know, obviously sometimes they have difficulty letting go of control. Mm -hmm. So um, just talk about the power that lies in student voice in this process of embedding UDL in a school and um, in a teacher's classroom. So, I mean, that really focuses on like that third concept. So we embrace variability. We focus on the firm goals. But then the last thing that is a huge part of UDL is this outcome of expert learning is students who help to co-create their learning paths. Mm -hmm. So an expert in learning is not necessarily the best student 
an expert in learning is someone who really knows what they need to be successful and they're purposeful in getting that. They're resourceful. They know what they need to have and they're strategic and that they know what methods and resources work for them. And so the way that we allow people or the way that we scaffold expert learning is essentially at a very emerging level, we start to provide options and choices. And when students are very young, we might even say like, I want you to try all of these choices. So like when I was a middle school teacher, you know, I would say, you always have the option to use your notes on any assessment we take. And that's because I don't want memory to get in the way of your learning. So you'll always have an option to use any resources. But I want to make sure that any notes you take are actually useful to you in some way. So I'm always going to have the option for you to use like a guided note template, which I'll have in like a Google Doc. However, there are a number of different ways you can take notes. And some of you might find some of those things more valuable than others. So this week, I'm going to have everyone take Cornell notes. I'm going to teach you how to take Cornell notes. We're going to talk about what are the pros, what are the cons, how do people use them. You can learn about Cornell notes by watching videos. You can compare Cornell notes. I would always have one student do them on like a document camera so other people had an, a model if they wanted one. So I'd take volunteers. At the end of the week, I give some sort of assessment use your Cornell notes. But the last question on that assessment was like, so tell me the truth. What do you think about Cornell notes? You know, too much work, like don't like the organization, too linear, couldn't keep up with writing all the things. Okay, fine. No pressure. Now, you know, and now you know if it's helpful next week, sketch notes, just writing visuals, right? Some of you might be stronger visually, you know? And so again, someone model it. We're going to teach it at the end of the week use your sketch notes. Now the question is, what's a more effective strategy for note-taking for you? Is it sketch notes or is it Cornell notes? Third week, let's get into apps. You know, if you have phones, right? And so like after the third or fourth week, then I could say, all right, everyone, if you want to take notes, if taking these notes is valuable, you know that you have options for taking these notes feel free to share your notes with other people, feel free to like jigsaw and, you know, and, and I think that sometimes we talk about expert learning and people will say, well, students might not know what they need. So there can be a progression of saying like, I am going to introduce you to this experience. I have a four kids and I think of it, I always told my students that it was a no thank you bite. <laughs> I'm like, I want you to try it because if you don't try it, you don't know if it works. And so like test it out, you know, like see if, you know, using note cards is beneficial for studying. If it is, it could be a practice you can use independently. If it's not, don't waste your time. Mm -hmm. um, so the expert learning is essentially like we provide those options and choices, but as we transition to more expert practice, students will start to say, because what I can say is once they know that's a part of the classroom community, I can say, do any of you have different ways that you take notes? Because I'm really open to that. Like, wh what do you do? What do you use? Or I might say, um, I'm going to do a a short, profound text. I'm going to do a mini lesson with a grade level text. You have the choice to read it or listen to it. I have a copy of the translation so you can read it first in language one. You know, we're going to go through this text together because we need to practice this strategy. But now choose a text that means something for you so you can practice this strategy. So I have a couple of texts here, but 
Like you might say, Novak, all of these look like terribly, terribly disconnected from my life. Could I go to the library and pick something else? Yes, I love that idea. Like, let's do that. So an expert learner is absolutely a part of that co-creation. So, you know, when we believe in variability, when we focus on our goals, when we seek expert learning, we then need to use those three principles of UDL, which is to provide multiple means of engagement, multiple means of representation and multiple means of action and expression. And what that really is are different pathways to get students interested and committed to the learning, different pathways for how they can learn the material, and then different pathways for them to share what they have learned, but it is bound by the standard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the goal is we're all going to solve algebraic equations, there's no option to be like, I want to make a video, a funny video. It's like, well, the funny video has to have you actually solving that algebraic equation or it's not going to work for me. So, you know, I think that it's just making really clear, this is what you need to do. These are the options for how you can learn it. Although I'm open to you finding other resources. This is what I need to see from you. I'm very open for you using different scaffolds or suggesting another way that you could do that. And some teachers might be hesitant to start there just because it's like, but students might not even know what the other options are yet. And so there's a great opportunity to scaffold that type of thinking by just starting to share that there's multiple ways to do everything and we don't all have to do them the same. So building the skills necessary to be able to make those informed decisions later on with their learning. And I I heard you talk about um, UDL is not differentiated instruction Mm -hmm. and that there's often there's often people confuse that get that confused. So can you talk about what you mean when you say that UDL is not differentiated instruction? Yes. And before I do that, I will definitely say that a really great educator needs both. This is not an either or. They just are not the same. Mm -hmm. So universal design for learning is very proactively thinking about firm goals, embracing student variability, and coming up with different ways for students to engage, to learn, to share what they know. But students get to self-differentiate their learning. Students get to decide. There's none of this like, no, that you don't need that scaffold. You can do more than that. Or no, that's too hard for you. Like it's truly about this exploration of, you know, if you want to try that, then that's great. Let's check in in 15 minutes and see how you're doing. Okay. Um, If you feel like you need more support today because of how you're doing socially and emotionally, or like you need to seek some balance because your other classes are just slamming you. Sure. Use scaffolds you wouldn't normally use. One of the things that we say in UDL is what is necessary for some is a really great option to provide to everyone, right? Like soy milk is necessary for some. There's a lot of people who don't need soy milk who drink soy milk. It's just like a better choice. And, you know, sometimes you choose soy, sometimes you choose something else. So it's when we know that there are scaffolds that will be necessary for some students, especially when we know some students might struggle and, you know, we know that there needs to be a graphic organizer. We know that there needs to be an opportunity to revise. Let's just offer that option to everyone. And then to say, like, I honor you and trust you to make good decisions about your learning. I don't expect you to make good decisions about your learning every time. I don't make good decisions all the time. Nobody does. And so um, when we're thinking about self-differentiation, it is students who are actually making the choices about their learning. That being said, assessments are going to come in. 
So, you know, let's take this a scenario, for example, that we want students to understand like the five themes of geography. And so as a teacher, we need to make sure that all students really understand, you know, what are the five themes of geography? And we say to students, all right, everyone, like I want you to choose a country. It could be the country that you're in. It could be a country where your family is from. It could be a place you want to visit, but you're going to choose a country. And then you have to answer these five questions you know, focused on the five themes of geography about that country. I have all the books that were in the school library, you know, about, you know, from the geography area, you're welcome to use these, but also you're welcome to use your devices and like, look up the answers to like, what is the dominant religion in, you know, Brazil or whatever it happens to be. And then you're going to share with me what you have learned about the country that you chose from the resources you chose. And you're going to bring it together and say, you know, I'm going to answer a question about the five themes of geography in this country. And you can do that by just writing them out one by one. You can try to bring them together. You can make a video that comes in as a formative assessment. And now I suddenly say, Oh my word, these five kids did not get it. And these kids here went so above and beyond. So differentiated instruction is the work of Carol Tomlinson. And she uses a phrase that I remind myself all the time called flexible grouping and regrouping. Carol Tomlinson doesn't believe there's advanced learners and struggling learners and English language learners. Okay. It's just based on the assessment data. I need to be responsive and give these kiddos something different to supplement what they did universally designed. And so um, Mike Anderson is awesome. He wrote learning to choose, choosing to learn. And, you know, he always says that when we're thinking about giving students options and choices, we always need to think about it as being three steps, choose, do, review. And so he's like, we give students these options and we say, make a choice. And they, they follow through with something, but rarely do we take the time to say, talk to me about whether or not those choices led you to the goal. So the differentiated instruction piece is I would pull a small group of students who are struggling and I would say, okay, so I'm not seeing any evidence of the five themes of geography in what you've created. It's no problem at all. You have the option to revise it. So I don't want you to feel any pressure, but talk to me about some of the choices that you made first because I want to help you to make better decisions the next time. So, um, you know, when we, when we think about planning instruction, it's often like an either or. So like I'm going to universally design and students are going to make all of these choices. And then if they make bad choices, like, well, that kind of stinks too bad for them. And then there's this differentiated instruction, which is I have to put students in groups and give them different experiences because I don't, I I don't think that they're going to be capable of making the right choices. Right. And, and those are both extremes. <laughs> and so how do we say I'm going to begin by honoring students by being open about these pathways, but then as formative assessment data suggests that students are not making progress, I'm going to create flexible groups based on who might be struggling based on, you know, who might need a little bit more clarification based on who might really need an exemplar because I have actual evidence. And so uh, George Kuros and I, we talk about this in Innovate Inside the Box. You know, we say, you know, using UDL and also using differentiated instruction really helps you to be learner driven and evidence informed Mm -hmm. is like learners should be driving the learning experience. But when there's clear evidence 
that students are not making progress, we have to be informed by that evidence and we have to be responsive. And what's really great about that is I think that most teachers would agree that they can really do their best work when they're with just a handful of students or a small group of students. When those students have something in common about what they need, you know, you can really maximize outcomes. But that can't be instead of giving students opportunities to learn who they are as learners, because life doesn't group us and give us different things. Like I'm by myself here working as a consultant and I need to be resourceful. I need to be purposeful. I need to be strategic. There's no one who makes decisions for me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the importance of building that autonomy, building that engagement. And, you know, a lot of people talk about achievement gaps. I don't like the term at all. I don't use it. I don't think we can call it an achievement gap because we don't give students equal opportunities to be learners. So I always talk about it as a, this is an opportunity gap. Some students don't have opportunities to to access grade level instruction. Some students don't have opportunities to access learning in ways that are working best for them. Um, It's an access barrier, of course, like there's a huge access barrier to education, but then it's also about different expectations. So until students have the same opportunities, the same access, the same expectations, and the same hope that they can be successful because they see a pathway for them in the classroom, we can't anticipate outcomes that are similar. So, you know, I think that it's important to say, you know, many schools will provide students with what they need because those students are part of kind of like the dominant culture of the school. So like you can say that I am a strong reader, but I'm really only a strong reader if you give me a text in English because one limitation is I'm not bilingual or multilingual. Um, So like this book right here, if you give this to me in another language, I I can't read it. I'm no longer a strong reader. Um, Also, I um, have very, very poor vision. And if I was not wearing corrective lenses, I would not be able to see a single word on that page. But my contacts are a scaffold that are just allowed in our system. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it always blows my mind. Like, why did we draw the line saying like glasses are fine, but like calculators aren't? (laughs) Like I can't see without the contacts. Some students can't yet do math fluency without the calculator. And it's just, there were too, you know, there's too many people who based on their own identity decided that some options were allowed and some were not. It just so happens that the supports that I need text in a language that I understand and contact lenses are ones that the system very much will provide. And so it's like, how do we get the conditions right? So every kid gets the conditions they need to be successful. And to do that, we have to work with students and families and each other to figure out what those options are. Yeah. And, you know, going back to self-determination theory, again, it's that second fundamental need, human fundamental need is relatedness. So relationships in our life and building strong relationships. And when those are in place, that's another factor that leads towards more intrinsic motivation. And that's everything you just described. Teachers really ensuring that strong relationships are in place and that they know their students. The leaders in the schools, obviously they they have to lead in a way that will allow this um, process to be implemented successfully. So what do you think leaders need to let go of within themselves to effectively lead when implementing UDL? I think that, I think administrators have to model this in faculty meetings and professional development. You know, I think like, what really is your goal for your next meeting? 
you know, and then what are different ways that teachers could learn more about it? You know, can they attend in person or virtually? Can they read an email or attend? Can they watch a video recording afterwards or attend live? Um, how will you know what they've learned? You know, can they send you an email? Can they sign up for a quick meeting with you? Can they invite you to a group meeting? Like, I just think we always have to say not all of our teachers need the same thing to grow. And I think when teachers experience this, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this was much better for me as an adult. I can see how this would also be much better for learners. I also think there's an incredible opportunity to align universal design with current educator evaluation systems because we do evaluate teachers and give them feedback about their practice. And we often use rubrics. And if you see the words like engage all students, which you will see in almost every rubric, mm-hmm. not all students can be engaged in the same way. And therefore, that's a real opportunity to say, if we truly are going to engage all students, what barriers prevent us from engaging the students that are not super locked in, like the Katie Novaks of the world, who are not super engaged. And, you know, and I was much further along because I was not defiant. I was not retreating. I was not rebellious. Um, I was just very strategically compliant. But we, if we're going to engage all learners, we have to do things differently. You know, I think also there's a lot of educator evaluation rubrics that talk about the importance of student independence and student agency. You know, again, this requires students to have some sort of flexibility because there's no reason to be self-aware if no one's even going to give you a choice. So like I, if, if you were to say to me, do you want this or this? I stop and I think, like, okay, oh, what's, you know, what's, what's the goal again? <laughs> okay, so I can do this or this Ooh, based on how I'm feeling right now, based on what, I, okay, I'm going to choose that. So by having a choice, I become more self-aware. But if you never give me a choice, I don't even have to like think about my own strengths or my own limitations. And, and so I think that, you know, leaders can go back and look at their educator evaluation rubric, can start highlighting places where it's like, this really is calling for us to design things differently and then introducing the framework of universal design, which has been around for 30 years um, to say, how can we better embrace variability? How can we better articulate what really is it that kids need to know and do and strip away all of the construct irrelevant factors? You know, like I need to make sure that students understand how animals adapt to their environment. So they're all going to give a presentation in front of the class with no notes about an animal that doesn't connect at all. It's just like a, a random expectation your job is to make sure that animals can explain, right? So I think we have to spend more time unpacking our goals and then we just have to let kids try. We just have to let them begin to make choices. And so many educators are worried about they're going to make bad choices, but you'll never know if a choice is not bad unless you experience a natural consequence, which is I chose that and didn't really learn. So I probably wouldn't choose that again. That is the nature of the beast. If What's your advice to schools and teachers who want to begin to know more about this or implement it in their own practice, schools in particular? What's a first step, um, like some resources, obviously your website, which I'll put in the show notes, but what are some other things that they might consider? Um, you know, certainly I have lots of different tools. I think that most people will start by 
looking at the UDL guidelines, we can absolutely put that link um, there. That was created by CAST um, out of Harvard University, which is essentially um, a kind of collection of all the places where we can anticipate student variability and therefore where we should provide options and choices. So the UDL guidelines can be helpful. There's so many books written about UDL, which I think that not necessarily requiring a one-size-fits-all book study, but maybe taking four or five titles about UDL and saying to staff, choose a book that is most interesting to you. And we can do like a kind of a universally designed book study and, and have different groups. Um, just trying to, to build some more background. And that way you'd have options of eBooks, in print books, audiobooks, you know, depending on the different list. I think that that goes a long way. And, you know, certainly... Sometimes the best step is just to sit down and say, what are the barriers that we're facing right now? So like, you know, for me, it's hard to be a seventh grade teacher and teach grade level text because some students aren't decoding at grade level. Okay, well, how do I eliminate that barrier and still give students access to grade level text, which is rightfully theirs? Oh, well, I could record my voice and provide an audio version of it, or I could allow students to read it together. Okay, great. Right. So those actually are UDL guidelines, right? Provide auditory options and, you know, provide scaffolding for text. So many of them educators will come to if you say, what is the barrier and how could you eliminate it so the kid could still have access to that goal? And, you know, the research based strategies is usually you got to provide another option. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. So I'm going to include some of that. So you said the UDL guidelines by CAST. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What what's CAST stand for, or what is it? It stands for the um, the Center for Applied Special Technology, and that is the organization that coined the framework of universal design in the early 1990s. It was led by uh, a gentleman named Dr. David Rose, who has since retired. David Rose trained me personally in in UDL. He was my mentor. Um, when I was in the professional cadre at CAST. And so it's essentially, they did all of the brain-based research um, about how we can, in fact, activate all the networks of the brain of every learner, regardless of variability, if we realize that activating brains requires different inputs. And so um, they, you know, really have the most research behind the effectiveness. Um, And to this day, they do have a big research and development arm. Okay, great. I'll put that in the show notes. So let's jump into just to end the show, a little bit of the personal now and you and I connected and we kind of shared a little bit about our our love of physical activity. Um, So that's what I want to end with. So I think um, what you had said in your email to me that you are a long distance runner. So yeah, it's just nice to know, you know, not just the professional about somebody, but the personal as well. And so what inspires you and what, what keeps you going and and talk about your long distance running. And I think you might be running a marathon soon. Yes. I'm running a marathon on Sunday, which I'm really excited about. So I've been running since I can remember, I used to go out and run on my own in middle school, like would take the dog on a leash on my own and like self propel run. So, you know, before high school coaches asked you to run, I just always really liked running. I remember the first race that I ran, I was in kindergarten and we had to run around the field and I was just naturally fast. And I always had just loved the feeling of running. You know, it's like, I could just be 
Um, you know, I, I often listen to audiobooks or music on really long runs because now I'll go out for four or five hours. But I mean, I could run with with nothing and there's like music playing in my head. So, you know, for me, I have four kids, um, 11 and under. You know, I, I, I travel for work. I, you know, I have a, a lot going on with, um, you know, trying to do the consulting work, but also support a company. I have consultants who, you know, work with me. And so trying to do the operations piece. And the only time that I can get my brain to shut off is when I'm running. It's the only time. It's not when I'm falling asleep at night. When I'm falling asleep at night, I'm thinking about a billion things I have to do the next day. You know, it's not in the shower. It's like, oh my gosh, I have to get out of here quick. Is like when I run, the learner part of my brain can completely turn off. And for me, it's like Chicksimahai's state of flow yeah, is yeah. that like, I don't realize how much time has gone by. I don't realize how many miles I'm always surprised when my map, my run will tell me like you are at 17 and a half miles. I'm like, what? Like, I don't remember hearing since like five miles where I was. So for me, it's, I always, always have gone out. The only time that I did not run ever in my whole life is I do have twins. And when I was pregnant with the twins, I worked out the whole time, but I stopped long distance running and I was heartbroken because, you know, I, they, I, they were healthy and I don't regret not running. I couldn't believe how quickly I got out of running shape. So I've always been in running shape and then I didn't run for like 10 months. And then I remember I'm like, yes, you know, the twins are six weeks old. I'm going running. And like, I didn't even get a mile and I had to stop and I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so another thing that I love about it is just that you have to continue to do it. And I, one of the things I struggle with professionally is when people say I'm already doing that. And for me, running is just an incredible analogy to say like, well, that means nothing. Like it doesn't matter if you're currently doing it. If you don't continue to think about more efficient ways to do it and to find time to continue to do it, um, it, it goes away. Mm-hmm. And so I love that, you know, about the experience. So I am running a marathon on Sunday. I've run marathons before. Um, I do have my sights on an ultra though. So after this one, I'm oh, like, wow. maybe I'll go longer the next one. The barrier I'm facing is just getting more hours to run, but there's got to be a way. So what's, what's your target time or like, do you, do you set a goal? Oh, I don't run fast. I'm like a solid, like a 10 minute miler, you know, whether I'm going to run 10 miles or 20 miles or 25 miles. Um, I'm, I'm definitely not a racer. I'm more of a finisher. So are you four out three and a half, four, four hours for the marathon? I honestly don't even know the time. Which is a good thing because you're just, you're doing it because you love it. Yeah. No, like when you go on the app, they just say like, what is your estimated mile? And I said 10 minutes and they're like, you will finish at 1130. Like, I don't even know how long that's going <laughs> to, yeah. so I was just trying to do the um, mental math to figure, figure that out. I so. know. I know. Yeah, so, I think that's you know, about four me, hours. For me, it really is just a love of turning my brain off. Um, it, it's almost like an altered state. Like Does I, you know, anything it, it, turn on when, you know, like, for example, some people, they turn off work and all of this stuff, but then creativity turns on and they start to think if they're a writer, they start to really think about creative pursuits as a writer. Does, does anything turn on when you run? No. Okay. It's so, just quiet. I do listen to audiobooks quite a bit and I can totally just focus on the audiobook or listen to the music. But no, for me, what is so valuable is I stop thinking about things. And 
I would run my, no pun intended. I would drive myself into the ground if my brain didn't get a break. Um, I don't, I'm not one for sleep. You know, I, I work really late into the night, you know, one or two in the morning. Sometimes I'm happy to get up early. Um, you know, the only time that I really carve out for myself I do, you know, I, I carve out time with my kids and to play board games. Literally, some people go to the spa. <laughs> some people, you know, have a bottle of wine. I schedule time in my schedules, you know, at least three or four times a week for a run. And that's how Sweet. I practice self-care. Oh, that's great. That's so important. And, um, you know, for me, physical activity has, has meant so much. So I'm, I try to run my knees kind of give me trouble every now and then. So if I, if I get too, too you know, I do too much mileage. But that's something that I've always done and it's important to me. So even if I go out for a short three or four mile run or as, at least I'm out there moving, you know, and that's what's important. Right. So, yeah. So where can people find you on social media and your website? So my website is NovakEducation.com, N-O-V-A-K. So NovakEducation.com is where I'm at on social media. Um, I'm usually Katie Novak UDL. Um, I'm most active on Twitter, but I'm very easy to find with a quick internet search. Um, and, you know, again, anyone is welcome to contact me with questions or if you're looking for specific, you know, specific resources or recommendations of articles or books, um, I am happy to, to give people some recommendations. Okay, great. Thank you very much for being on the show, Katie. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, I'm just going to close off the show and then we'll just say goodbye. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Katie Novak. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.